Harvard Divinity School. Angela's Symposium, YouTube, Esotericism, and the Academia, October 18th, 2023. Welcome to our first Nosiologies event for the 2023-2024 academic year. This is our third season. Thank you all for supporting this series. My name is Giovanna Parmigiani, and I'm the host of this series organized within the Transcendence and Transformation Initiative at the CSWR here at Harvard Divinity School. This series focuses on ways of knowing that are often labeled as non-rational, traditionally referred to as noses in Western philosophical and religious traditions, and often understood in contraposition to science, these ways of knowing are becoming more and more influential in contemporary societies, popular culture, and academic research. What is the place of spirit possession, divination, and experiences perceived as out of the ordinary in our lives? How can we study and approach this type of phenomena? Going beyond dichotomies such as body and mind, ordinary and extraordinary, reason and experience, and matter and spirit, this series hosts scholars of different disciplines and practitioners interested in exploring and expanding the boundaries of what counts as knowledge today. Before introducing today's guest, one announcement. The Q&A feature here on Zoom is activated. Therefore, you can type your questions for our guest and I will try to ask them on your behalf if time permits. Goes without saying, that if you have questions for us after the event, you can reach out to me by email and I will share them with today's speaker. You can find my email address in the chat box or on the CSWR and HDS websites. So today I have the honor and pleasure to be here with my colleague and friend, Angela Puka, Dr. Angela Puka. I'm sure that many of you already know her. For those of you who don't, Dr. Puka is an academic, a YouTuber. She's the creator of the very successful YouTube channel, Angela Symposium. Her research focuses on magic, witchcraft, paganism, esotericism, shamanism, and related currents. She's the author of several peer-reviewed publications and co-editor of the forthcoming book, Pagan Religions in Five Minutes for Equinox. With her work and social media presence, by delivering scholarly content on her YouTube channel and the social media project Angela Symposium, Dr. Puka is committed to bridging the gap between academia and the communities of magic practitioners. Today, we will talk precisely about this, Angela's innovative approach to academia by utilizing popular social media platforms. We will explore the challenges and opportunities of digital scholarship, discuss the implications of bridging two worlds for academia at large, and present future avenues for scholarly engagement in the rapidly evolving landscape of digital media. So thank you, Angela, for being here. Thank you so and much for, for inviting me. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. I'm thrilled to have you here. We had many conversations all online, actually. We never met in person, <laughs> but we yeah. uh, crossed paths online several times, right? Um, we will, we will soon. Yes, that's definitely something that has to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so before diving into academia and social media, which is, again is the topic of this conversation, 
a question on your backstory. I always start with a backstory question because I'm curious and I think the nosiologist <laughs> community is. <laughs> so your backstory, how did you become interested in the academic study of esotericism? So I think that I've always been interested in magic <laughs> growing up, to be honest. And um, I grew up in a family and in a place where I uh, was very connected to folk magic practices, the ones that I ended up studying for my PhD and that I systematized under the name the traditional signature. By the way, my uh, book will be published by Brill, hopefully in six months or so. And um, so growing up, I've always been fascinated by magic. Uh, that's always been my core interest. And then going to university, I chose philosophy. And uh, I also studied Buddhism and Indian and Tibetan philosophies and traditions, because as you may know, in, in Italy, you don't quite have, maybe now there's something similar, but when I did my university degrees, you didn't have anything similar to religious studies. So people that were interested in religion would uh, very often take uh, philosophy. And I'm still very much interested in philosophy. And I also added a lot of exams on religious studies. Um, but I guess that my interest has always been magic as a way of navigating the world and navigating reality in a way that is beyond the ordinary, as we could say. And um, I've always find it, and I still find it endlessly fascinating. So I ended up becoming a researcher in um, magic practicing traditions. And I have focused on paganism and shamanism, uh, folk magic. But yeah, magic is, tends to be my my core interest, my core research interest. Thank you. Yes, since I, we, we both grew up in Italy. And so I, I know um, that it wasn't that easy to be able to concentrate on this type of things within, you know, the mainstream um, course curriculum. And so you did great. <laughs> <laughs> did you have a particular mentor or figure reference that helped you in the process? So in the academic sense? Or not. Okay. So I think that I have, there are two people that have been very important for me. And uh, the first one is um, an Argentinian shaman uh, who has, is not an academic, uh, but uh, she's been extremely important and influential for me. I met her when I was uh, 17, 18. So that um, I think it also shaped my academic career. I think that one day I will actually write a novel <laughs> about um things that have um happened to me <laughs> probably <laughs> in in regards to the esoteric side of things but uh, another person from the academic uh, in the academia that has been very influential uh, for me is professor mauro bergonzi uh, he's from uh, rome but he was teaching uh, in naples and he he taught um uh, indian philosophies and religions at my university and I did my thesis with him and he's always been very important for me and I would consider him a mentor even though he doesn't focus on on magic but I always saw the two of them as my kind of <laughs> uh, male and female figure of reference and mentors that's lovely thank you for sharing this with us and 
I I gather that I supported you in this uh, academic end of war of yours and your projects, but did you find any resistance between friends, I don't know, family or other mentors within the academic system? Oh, yes. <laughs> In Italy. <Ooh. laughs> There's a reason why I moved um, to the UK to do my PhD. Um, Yes, I definitely found resistance from some people in from some academics. Um, I think that at one point, actually, when I was an undergrad and maybe even in during my master's, which I, I've both done in Italy, uh, part of me didn't want to become an academic because I thought I associated being an academic with being very close minded and having uh, you know, not being very innovative in the way they would produce and deliver knowledge. I just thought academia as so dry. And then I realized that there wasn't, it wasn't the only way that you could do academia and that perhaps the people that I had around me had shaped my understanding of academics and academia in a, in a certain way. So yeah, I was definitely told that it was not PhD material when I was in Italy. That's mm. something that I probably never said online. Uh, so uh, yeah, mm. look at me now. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I think this is um, everybody who's ever succeeded at anything in life, they will tell you, I think that somebody during their uh, formative years had told them, oh, you cannot do this or you're not cut out to do this, but you don't have to listen to them. I don't think there are people that are cut out to do something or not. It's just a matter of putting effort and learning how to do things and getting better. Because, you know, the only thing that you can say is that you're not good enough yet. But if you put the effort into it, that's what I think a teacher or a mentor should do. Not say you're cut out to do this or you're not but rather saying you're at this point now, if you want to get to this point, that's my advice on how to improve. That would have been a much better way of um, communicating with me, but uh, that didn't happen. So yeah, I had a kind of resistance from uh, some professors and my uh, alma mater. And um, in terms of my YouTube um, friends, when I started my YouTube channel, uh, Friends of mine told me that it would never be successful because they said, who's going to want to listen to academic stuff on the internet? You should do something on goth and makeup. <laughs> that would be much more popular. I, I'm literally quoting, <laughs> translating, of course, because these are Italian friends. But um, yeah, I just wanted to do what I was most passionate about, to be honest. Um, so. so thank you for sharing this. Uh, as well and I'm glad you didn't pay attention to you know what they told you and by the way there's a reason why I left Italy also because it's <laughs> easy to inhabit uh, academic spaces well with exceptions of course and I, I think it's getting better and better I have to say but since I'm older than you I, I absolutely get um, you know that you must have the... faced you must have faced even more struggles than I had well, not really, because my first research was on feminism, actually. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I wanted to study anthropology elsewhere. But going back to Italy um, on work, working on paganism and being, you know, self-defining as pagan is a bit still seen a bit weirdly, let's say, because, of course, um, scholar practitioners are not as... Um, as well received um, 
in my opinion, in Italy, in comparison to, to North America, for example, at least here. But we'll talk, it's not about me, we'll talk about this <laughs> the other day. <laughs> but you mentioned your YouTube channel. And so how did you get the idea of your YouTube channel and the on the academic study of esotericism? And can you tell a story behind it? We love stories. <laughs> So um, uh, what happened is that during my PhD, as it often happens, I was writing a lot of things that didn't end up in my in my thesis, to be honest, in the end. And so I thought these things, I think that they are really interesting, though. I think that people should know about this. And then I was researching the pagan community and the esoteric practitioners communities and one thing that i was finding in the scholarship as well is that uh, pagans and esoteric practitioners are very interested in the academic scholarship around these types of topics and um i just thought i just want to make this public i just had this strong feeling that people would be interested and so in the final year of my PhD, I asked for a sabbatical from teaching because throughout my PhD, I also had a teaching position at the university. And so I asked for a sabbatical so that I could write up my thesis. And so I had to channel my teaching energy somewhere and I turned on the camera and I the first things that I my first videos were about things that I had researched, other things that I had delivered as uh, lectures at university or things that had um, that I had studied for my PhD and didn't end up in my thesis. Then I started including things that were also part of my thesis. And then I started doing research for specific topics that people were asking me to tackle. So that's how it progressed. But at first I thought, I think in the very first trailer of my channel, I said, I'm going to share knowledge that I progressively acquired during my academic journey and stay tuned for all the academic fun, which by the <laughs> way, it came, it came out all of a sudden because then it kind of became part of my brand, you could say the academic fun, but it just came out because I was incredibly embarrassed because I asked my <laughs> university to give me a room, just a, a normal, classroom with proper lighting they said but what do you have to do and it's like no i just have to film a video just a room that has you know big windows it's it's gonna be fine and they basically <laughs> took me to the tv studios of the universities and i was in front of this person with all the fancy cameras and lighting it's like what's happening here <laughs> i was not prepared for this and it's like oh i was told that you have to film a video okay panic i don't know what to say and then i started rumbling things and then i realized it was going nowhere so i said just give me a minute i just noted down on my hand the five things that i wanted to say and i said them on camera and then at the end it just came you know instinctively i just said and stay tuned for all the academic fun and then i thought where did that come from but <laughs> yeah it was very it was all um, pressure driven and embarrassment driven because I was put in a situation that was very, um, yeah, it was not um, planned. But then the, you know, the very first trade, the very first video on my channel, which is this trailer from 2019, uh, if people go back and watch it, <laughs> I don't know if you can see the embarrassment on my face, but perhaps I conceal it very well, but it's there. When you... <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for sharing this and it could be you know another type of knowledge that came to you in a different way since we are in a nosiologist you know <laughs> uh, form of gnosis we should at least we should at least you know point toward the possibility that could have been you know 
other types of knowledge is coming to you. Um, what happens when you watch? First off, do you watch your first videos occasionally? And what do you think about that, Angela? I try not to. <laughs> I think that now I have uh, progressed in terms of my video making skills. And so when I look back at my older videos, uh, I find them a bit cringy, but I know that people like them. So I, I respect that. But looking back at it, I realized that, you know, there were lots of I think in terms of production, I could have done better, but I, I learned by doing. I was not trained in video making, so I just had to learn. Um, but yeah, I, I find some of my old, I, I'm proud of the content of all my videos because that's always been my main focus. And mm -hmm. my videos have always been video papers. It's like mm -hmm. I, I would use the same methodology as when I was writing a paper for a conference or a um, peer-reviewed article, and I would put it in a video format. So I'm proud of the content of all my videos in terms of the production and my confidence with the camera not as much <laughs> but i think that i have grown into being a bit more comfortable with the with the camera wonderful so it's not um a small challenge the, you know starting from scratch what do you think have been the main challenges and the main achievements of having a youtube um channel and the community you know dealing with a community you know interested in in your work I think probably the main achievement is the community. I definitely love my community and uh, the the people that I interact the most with are my my patrons, of course, because that's uh, I call it my inner symposium. Um, and we have monthly calls and uh, conversations on the platform and on our Discord server. So I'm really proud of my community, both the inner symposium, the patron one and the community of people that uh, follow me on YouTube and other platforms. My two main platforms are YouTube and TikTok. I also mm -hmm. have a um, sizable following on TikTok. Um, and um, that's, I think, my main achievement is the community. Also the community of my colleagues on, on YouTube that also uh, do religious studies related topics. And now we call ourselves Religion Tube. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, the community for me is the greatest achievement. And in terms of the main challenges, uh, I think it's been a challenge to do the work, to be honest, because I end up very often working seven days a week. And I think that people often um, don't realize, well, not everybody, but like people, some people close to me just think, oh, you, everybody wants to be a YouTuber because they don't want to work anymore. So like you have no idea how much work goes into making um, content, especially, you know, the, uh, decent content on YouTube. So that's one of the challenges, finding the time, especially when you're also an academic and you have to you know, pr produce things or teach or you're kind of balancing two jobs. Um, also, I think that there is a little bit of misogyny online that I have to face quite often. <laughs> and uh, sometimes I also have uh, pushback from um, certain sides of the population that are fundamentalist in their religious views and they just tell me the places that I'm going to after after I die. So um, <laughs> those are probably okay. the challenges. 
beyond these uh, examples, um, which are not, you know, uh, hopefully not so representative, who are your followers and what are the main interests? Are there some topics within Western esotericism at large that you find that your community is more interested in too? That's a good question. Um, and that's different from saying what is more popular on YouTube as opposed to what is more popular among within my community. So I think that my audience is made of both practitioners that are academically inclined or at least interested in the academic side of aestheticism uh, because they want they find that it enriches their their practice even when they don't have any intention of becoming academics but uh, they find that knowing the academic side really enriches their practice and their understanding of what they're doing or their tradition or i have academics i have uh, students for instance uh, sometimes I get lovely letters from students that say that they have uh, started um, studying anthropology or religious studies or uh, related topics within religion, uh, thanks to my YouTube channel. Um, so it's it's lovely to see that. So I think that my audience is made of both practitioners and academics, but in both cases, you tend to see that there is an interest in the academic side of mm -hmm. esotericism. And in terms of what is more popular, um, I think that things that are generally more popular on YouTube, and that seems to be true in, even with my colleagues, are things that are evil and dark and scary. <laughs> so things that have to do with the left hand path or Satan or Satanism um, or demonology, demons, um, they tend to do better uh, because People just generally, you know, just my audience seem to be more attracted to those kind of topics. My audience specifically, I think, tends to be more attracted towards things like chaos magic, perhaps the left hand path. Uh, but it's quite uh, spread out because I have people interested in, I, obviously I have the most interaction with my patrons and they come from all different traditions. Some are in, in the voodoo and hoodoo traditions, others are um, weekends, others are other forms of uh, paganism. Um, there, there's one from the Golden Dawn. So you have the very different, yeah, quite a variety of traditions and backgrounds, but they are all interested in learning more about aestheticism. Wonderful. And I have two questions now, which I think are linked. Um, so what is your vision? For the future of your YouTube channel, and what is your vision for the future of the academic study of esotericism? They might be linked in your case, but not. How do you? What do you see? So the future of my project. Um, I'm not sure about what is the future of my project. I'm hoping that it will become or it will offer a new way of doing and delivering academic scholarship. I think that it's about time that the ivory tower, the so-called ivory tower really tries to be more open because one thing that I that I noticed ever since I started my YouTube channel is that I get a lot of comments from people saying, I have no idea that these things were studied in universities. So 
there are still a lot of people that just assume for good reasons because we don't <laughs> we don't try to make it more accessible they just assume that historicism magic paganism they are not studied in universities it's not a thing that you find in universities so, so that's one comment that i get um on a quite that's quite recurrent on my on my platforms and that made me realize that we might do a better job of trying to make this more open and accessible to, to the public. So my vision is not that clear in terms of what I want to achieve. I hope that perhaps I'm going to uh, offer a new way of doing academia that is not just closed behind the, the doors of a classroom and uh, that is confined behind a, a paywall and because it is true that my project is funded by my patrons because everybody needs to survive in life uh, but my patrons also offer this knowledge to everybody who perhaps might not have the, the means to access university level information or academic information because I source my content from peer-reviewed papers and they are often behind the paywall and they are also very difficult to find unless you are trained to find academic papers and to find uh, these kind of things they are very difficult to to access in in many different ways so offering this kind of knowledge uh, I think is very important so my vision would be to perhaps one day see academia and that kind of links to the future of academia <laughs> so I guess the the vision for my project and the vision for uh, the academic study of historicism is that it becomes more accessible to the public um, I tend to have this dream of <laughs> universities being public and accessible to all but I know that it's probably a utopia um, I personally think that education and healthcare should be public but that's that's my view so since I'm in education, I feel like whatever I can do to make university level knowledge accessible to everybody, I feel like that's that's necessary. And I think that if uh, other academics in the field, not they don't all have to do a YouTube channel or anything like that, but even small things to make things more accessible, even a blog or whatever it is that it is in your interest or in that you think that you could do well and that you could enjoy, I think it's a, a step forward in terms of making academic knowledge more accessible to the public because it's not just about the knowledge that you deliver it's also about the the method that you deliver because we cannot really complain about people going to the polling station and voting a certain way if we don't try and um, deliver and teach the skill set of critical analysis because for instance what i try to do with my channel even though it tends to talk about esotericism is not only teach esotericism but teach a methodology a skill set not being content with having a yes and no answer looking at the nuance of things because i think we are suffering from we are sorely suffering from not looking at the nuances of things of wanting things to be one way or another extreme polarizing extremely polarized thought and that really doesn't do any good to any side of the spectrum whatever the spectrum is so i think that also uh, teaching and 
training people to exercise critical analysis, looking at the complexity of things is not only useful for people who want to understand esotericism from an academic point of view, but it's useful for everybody. And that's one of the strengths of being an academic online and doing public outreach, whatever your discipline is, is that you are training people to be more complex in their thinking, to have more critical analysis that is so essential. So my vision for the future of my channel, I guess I'm kind of going back in circles. My vision is to have to, to show a different way of doing academia. And I hope that the future of the aesthetic study, the academic study of historicism tends to be a bit more open to the to the public and uh, allow people to access information more easily. Thanks so much, Angela, for for many of the things you said. Um in this answer. Um, first off, I would say that here in Osiologies, we are trying in our you know, little field to, That's do, great. to do this. <laughs> we have been doing this for three years and um, I think it's our attempt, you know, to, to let this conversation reach um, a wider public. Uh, and also I want to do a shout out to Mark Zima who actually wrote an, an email to us touching exactly on the very important point of the exorbitance of the prices um, of, to the public of academic papers and how it's difficult if you want to, you know, read or access to the type of research we do to, without the support of a university, without affiliation, it's very expensive and, and taxing. And, um, and I really love, so thank you, Mark, for this remark. Uh, we can all think together in ways in which we can rectify this. Uh, some of the things you said are very important in our little spaces, just try to do what we can. And I really loved your point about, you know, teaching a method, right, online. Simplifying is not banalizing, right, and making things banal. You know, you can honor complexity even if you explain it in a simpler way. Um, and I think you are an amazing example of how this could be done and could be done in a very successful uh, way. Um, so thank you for the work you do. <laughs> I'm very, <laughs> I'm very so happy much. to have you here. Yeah, I like, you know, there are people that say, oh, the, the internet is flattening the conversation or anything because people um, just interact by sharing memes and memes just flatten the complexity and just make everything a slogan. Well, why don't we use the internet to do something different? Why don't we deliver complexity instead? It's not a matter of the internet is bad, social media is bad. It's a, it's a tool. So we can try and use it in a different way because that's where people are. You have to reach out people where people are. In the past, it was the piazzas and now it's social media. So things change and people need to, to adapt. You're very right on this. And it's especially as a scholar of conspiracy theories, I see this polarization discourses online um, and offline and sometimes fed by, you know, the type of, framing of discourses and knowledge online that you were mentioning before. So I'm absolutely with you in this, um, you know, meet, meeting people where they are and try to, you know, just share a method more than idea. I think ideas can be changed, but the method remains, you know, something we are grounded in, right? Thank you for that. I was just saying to the, to the audience that I will leave the questions for 
the last part of this conversation for the last few minutes is not that I'm ignoring your question. They're very, uh, most of them are very nice. And, um, and I will ask them just um, stay with us a little bit longer and I will address them all together towards the end of this, um, of this conversation. Um, so given your experience and your skills, what advice would you give to academics or students, graduate students, PhD students? And I'm, you know, thinking about my students, wonderful students, um, who might want to write or engage with non-academic audiences on mm -hmm. YouTube, on TikTok. So what advice would you give them? Uh, what advice would I give to people that want to be on social media? and as academics. as academics as academics i think to to find your your way of delivering information that is accurate and to also always cite your sources and <laughs> have a, a strict methodology just as you would do in in your university or when you were writing a paper um i think my advice would be to just start and try to be try to be to be and to do the, the best that you can while you are on social media. And I think that if you tune in your personal individual energy, I think there is something that you can give also on a personal level. Because it is true that the accuracy of the information and the methodology are important. But I think another thing that probably people that follow me like is the fact that it's very personal personable <laughs> that um i'm uh, that i don't appear like the the, the stereotypical uh, academic that doesn't mean that somebody who uh, appears like the stereotypical academic would not be successful but i think that you need to channel yourself you need to be yourself um and for instance i think that i used to um tone myself down a little bit more when i was in the university and then when i started doing my youtube i thought you know who cares nobody's gonna watch me anyway so i might as well be myself <laughs> and and i just went all out so i think just be yourself because it also needs to be a creative endeavor you need to enjoy it and you need to be yourself because people will um, relate more to you and will listen more to you if they feel like you are a person instead of just an encyclopedia of information. Uh, so I would say use the methodology that you have learned as, as a scholar during your university degrees and then be yourself and be creative, express yourself. Wonderful advice. Thank you very much. Does your community have any ideas about academics? How, how they are, how they should be, what would they want from us? Why well, I'm using mm -hmm. they, I am an academic. How should we be, how <laughs> we are, and what should we do? Um, what are common ideas, complaints, I don't know, opinions on academics and academia? Mm. I think that I used to get more of this early on in my uh, social media journey because now people tend to know a bit more about my my stance on this. Um, I think that people tend to think that academics that study esotericism are very judgmental and they look at practitioners as if they were 
you know, these things that they were studying, these weirdos, let's see how they behave. And uh, it's not really how academics study um, the community of practitioners, but there is, I think, a lingering prejudice for good reasons, because the 19th century has left <laughs> a clear mark on how anthropologists uh, are perceived. But there is this idea that you are, and I face this not just with my audience online, but even in my fieldwork for my research. Um, one of the things when I had, for instance, to undertake initiations and um, when I spent time with communities, the first thing that I was facing was the, the fact that they wouldn't trust me because for ethical reasons, I always had to state that I was there as a scholar, that I was an academic, that I was studying um, the what was happening. And the first reaction was sort of, oh, she's studying us. We are objects of research. Uh, but I think that the, um, the, the teacher dealt with it very well because I'm thinking about one occasion in particular where there was a medical doctor who was not particularly happy about my presence as a researcher and so the 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 shaman there the shamanic practitioner the teacher uh, just um, asked me to do every single exercise first in front of everybody to show that um, nobody was an object of research and we were all you know co-participants uh, so that kind of, and then over time, people get to know you and that sense of, um, what's the term, um, re reservation uh, tends to fade away when they get to know you. But uh, I think that there is still the kind of idea, even online, that academics tend to, if you are an academic and you are in science, you must disagree with everything that esoteric practitioners do, because there is this scientistic worldview that everything, that the only things that exist are things that are explained by science. And if you are within the realm of science and academia, then you need to be uh, scientistic, <laughs> not scientific, but scientistic. Sure. I mean, doing ethnography is always complicated, right? That's why I'm always a proponent of slow ethnography. You know, I've been spending five years in the past 12 in the same place um, and mostly with the same people. Um, not only, but, you know, the core community remained the same. And um, I think one of the benefits is that they know my, me very well. And so the academic aspect of my engagement with them tends to be, much, you know, they they eventually trust me <laughs> I know but I, I can hear how complicated it is um to um to navigate the spaces as a scholar um, especially when you do research and talking about your research what are you working on and then we'll move to the questions from the audience so if you have questions rather than the Q&A box let's see so what I am what I'm working on at the moment. Um, so I just um, handed in the final manuscript to Brill for publication. So that's on Italian witchcraft and shamanism and the tradition of segnatura and forms of transcultural indigenous shamanism in Italy. And it's the product of my PhD research. Um, and I'm, I'm working on uh, ideas of uh, apocalypticism in paganism. I was asked by the Cambridge uh, Dictionary of, I can't remember the full thing, but <laughs> it's a Cambridge Dictionary that asked me to write an entry on paganism. So I'm working on it as well. And I'm working on the AAR paper for <laughs> uh, on uh, open and closed practices. 
which is um, something that is quite popular at the moment. I mean, it is part of the, the contemporary discourse around um, magic practices. So I think it's important to, to research that. Um, and uh, in the future, I'm, I've sent a, a book proposal to Oxford University Press, um, which has shown interest in it. And uh, it's going to be on AI uh, technology and witchcraft and how witchcraft is being reshaped and esotericism is being reshaped by the use of AI and the advent of AI and um, social media and the advancements in technology. Wonderful. It's lots of on your plate. And I think this last yeah. one, I, I can see how it's, you know, draws interest of many. It's very, very important topic. So yeah, and also we don't have much research on that. If you look at the scholarship, there isn't I think the last influential text that I can remember is Cyberhand from 2003. And then there was uh techno paganism from the 90s, I think. So it's something that um yeah, it doesn't, it seems like there's a gap to be filled in, in academia, and especially now with 2023 being the AI revolution for everybody. Sure. No, absolutely. Um, and the, on the academic side of things, when we write something, it takes forever to be published. Oh, yes. So that's also... The that's very annoying. That we, that's very annoying. And, you know, we might have been doing research uh, on a topic and, you know, it takes forever before people can actually read it. Um, so um, I am starting from a question from David, uh, but broadening up a little bit. Um, David asks, do you have any advice for pagans considering an MDiv? In general, do you have advice to students who would like to follow your step? You did not, not do an MDiv, but you worked on you know, magic and paganism within academia. Do you have any advice to students? For pagans or for students in general for students who are pagans in mm. in the academy in, in terms study paganism. in terms of how to go about their studies or what to do afterwards <laughs> i think both and if we want mm. to add into the conversation a question from um amanda on the recent um um MA degree program in magic and the occult science offered by University of Exeter in UK, mm -hmm. close to you. That would be wonderful. Mm -hmm. Where are the places in which you would go to study paganism? And how would you, you know, interact with, with the academic system as mm -hmm. a scholar interested in, in deepening this type of questions? Okay, let's start with the first question. So my advice for uh, students or pagans uh, con considering an MDiv. So it's, if you're considering it, I'm guessing that you're trying to decide whether to, to do it or not. And then the question, the, the answer is do it <laughs> because education is always good. And I think you will learn many more things about both your, your views since this person is, uh, David, David is talking about being a pagan um i think that you will learn much more about your own practice but also about other religious practices because i think it's very important to have a very broad view um and the second question was about the university yes it was about there? the masters in uh, magic and occult science uh by the university of exeter in the uk there's a master's recently being founded and what are your thoughts on this and again what your I, advice would 
to see yeah i am aware i am aware of these masters because i interviewed um matthew melvin kushki who's not in exeter but he uh the this master is uh, there are two universities that are working on it, and uh, I think he's at the University of, is it North Carolina? I hope that I'm not misremembering, uh, but um, and Exeter. So there is this masters that um, they are offering on on magic. I'm not personally involved in it, uh, but uh, who knows? Maybe in the future. <laughs> I think that it's great that they are doing this, and uh, I hope that that people that people take it. And in terms of where you should study uh, to, if you're interested in historicism, I think that you have very good universities in Sweden. And of course, the University of Amsterdam is probably the most famous for having an entire department on the history of hermetic spirituality now and um, historicism. So I think Amsterdam is kind of the, the, the main university, I think, the, the most famous university for uh, tackling um, historicism, but generally speaking, if you're interested in historicism, I think that any religious studies course will do, because you need to also learn about religious studies, and then you can, if you're particularly interested in historicism, then you can tailor your, I don't know how it works in your country, but in the UK, you tend to have assignments and assessments, and in most cases, you can tailor it to whatever it is that you're most interested in. So if you're most interested in historicism and you are taking a religious studies type of course or a, um, a divinity type of course, you can then tailor your assessment and even your final dissertation or thesis um, towards what most interests you. So I think that that's also feasible. So you don't have to move to the other side of the planet to study historicism. You can just take a religious studies course or a divinity course and then try and include as much as many things on the esoteric side as you can and then you can move forward in in the uk there are the masters by research i don't know if you have those in in the us but uh for instance instead of you have the masters of arts where it's more similar to the bachelors and then the master's by research is sort of a mini PhD where you do research on a specific topic that you choose. Uh, so that's also an option. If you want to study historicism, you go into researching these type of topics. You attend conferences all around the world. There are conferences on historicism. Uh, you watch my YouTube channel. <laughs> and um, also you start to get more educated about um, how to find resources and you kind of slowly enter these spaces so that you can further your knowledge and your research. So I don't think that you necessarily, obviously it's great if you can, but you, if you want to study historicism academically, I think that any religious studies course will help you, will help you do that because the most important thing is learning the methodology. And then within your religious studies course, you can tailor it the way you're most interested in. And David, if you are on this side of the Atlantic Ocean, uh, because I don't know if you're based in Europe or uh, in North America, or where are you based actually? Uh, here at the CSWR, we, especially within Transcendence and Transformation Initiative, we have been tackling this question for a number of years, attracting also scholars, researchers from other universities, um, tackling this type of questions. So if it's true that uh, very many, you could concentrate on esotericism in religious studies, in anthropologists, in other topics within mainstream academia, pretty much everywhere, 
uh, it's true there are some centers that offer, you know, the presence, physical presence of scholars that are interested in this type of things. And Angela clearly mentioned Amsterdam, of course, um, Northern Europe, UK. On this side of the ocean, definitely Rice University, definitely HDS and oh, yes, are, are absolutely a, a place in which we are moving towards that direction, giving more space. Um, the fact that I'm teaching magic, it's is cool. <laughs> the anthropology That's great. of magic. Uh, well done. <laughs> it's, a, it's a sign in itself that there's interest in this type of things. So, but there are also other universities in which you can do that. Just if I can add an element, just as, as Angela was saying, try to build your own connections, go to conferences, um, follow Angela's um, videos and reading, you know, suggestions and make your own exciting path and journey by yourself, you know, just, you know, going to that and, you know, finding how the institutions can support your interests. You don't necessarily have to listen to things from a scholar that teaches you but you know if any instructor you find you you encounter is a facilitator they will be happy to you know make space for your own journey of your own discovery of what is matters and interest to you so good luck <laughs> so um So let me see other question let's start from the beginning mark do you think that people are drawn to esoteric and magical practice primarily for cultural, social or spiritual reasons, or perhaps a combination of both? Also, do you think that magic practice can have a psychological therapeutic value to practitioners? So if I think that people are drawn to esoteric and magical practice primarily for cultural, social or spiritual reasons, I think there are many reasons, many different um, intertwined reasons as to why people are drawn to, to magic. Um, and that's very individual. I don't think that I really have statistics on that, uh, but my perception is that it's a mixture of things. And for some people, there is an element that is more prevalent and for other people, there's another element that's more prevalent. I think that magic appeals for many reasons to investigate the side of reality that we cannot see, to understand the unseen and also understand better the scene because of that, um, because of the, the perception of the sacred and the profane and so the investigating the sacred aspect of of reality i think that magic also appeals because it feels like um a direct exploration of the sacred as opposed to what happens in other religions where it's more of a there's more of an intermediate and it's not just the the direct access to the divine it's also the participation in the divine because you have uh, other, you have religions that have a more direct and not as uh, intermediated access to the divine, but with magic and magic practicing traditions, you have that there is not only a direct access to the divine, but a co-participation co with the divine. Because practitioners work with deities and with other spirits to affect change in their reality and affect change changes in themselves. Um, so, and also there are cultural and social reasons to be interested in magic. Uh, for some people, witchcraft is a form of rebellion. Um, for instance, in the US, there's been the, uh, the Wicca has been, has become particularly popular, popular among the um, uh, gay and women liberations movement and tends to have more of that feminist flavor about it. 
um as uh, you know the um, i was also working with um with a scholar in spain about the the witch as um a symbol of um of opposition to patriarchy uh she's in political studies and we were discussing that so there are many many reasons as to why people are interested in historicism and magic i think it's very individual but i would say that the the most things that i would say is the direct access access to the divine which is an access that is also co-participation with the divine and is quite unique to magic practices i would as as far as i can think uh, off the top of my head and also exploring your agency magic allows you to explore your agency uh as when you are alive, I'm not saying even in a physical body, because there are practitioners that talk about astral traveling. So as far as you can perceive yourself as alive, what are the, the ways that you can explore the world? Is it just for the physical? Is it also in a metaphysical way? What's the extent of my agency? I think that magic tends to tackle all these questions in, in its own unique way, and that probably appeals to a lot of people. And also, do I think that magic practice um, can have a psychological therapeutic value? Yes, of course. I think that there are also atheistic witches that primarily focus on the psychological aspect of uh, ritual magic and spells. So they don't actually believe in the metaphysical side of things. They, but they still perform spells and rituals because they believe that there is, there's a psychological effect that they will have. As a, as a result of the spell. And famously, you have the, um, I don't know how, um, how known he is in Anglophone countries, but there's um, Jodorowsky, who's uh, quite known in, in Europe, and he talks about psychomagic and using and psycho rituals, and it's a combination of psychology and magic that tends to leverage a lot on the, the idea that magic and rituals of all sorts can have a transformative impact on a psychological level and as a consequence on, on you as a person. We always study Khodorovsky in oh, you do? my courses. <laughs> yes, yes. Also because of the recent video on psychomagic. It's so important in, in the, it's controversial figure, I have to say. I have uh, to make a video on Khodorovsky. <laughs> I think so. It's a quite controversial figure, but very popular um, in Europe and, and Central South America. Um, thank you for that. You can pick a question. There are so many. There are 17. Pick a question, Angela, and the one that's, um, mm. that you think is more in line with what you would like to talk so Matt Fortin says, uh, hello, Dr. Puka, can you elaborate on Italian witchcraft and how it differs from other forms of witchcraft? Um, I have a recent video on, well, since I don't have enough time, I can tell you that I have a few videos on Italian witchcraft on my YouTube channel. But to answer shortly, uh, and then you will find the longer answers over there, uh, I think that Italian witchcraft as um, as I said in my research, I systematized the forms of vernacular healing, the vernacular healing tradition uh, under the label, uh, the tradition of segnature. So something that is distinctive is the practice of segnature, 
for the old generation, uh, there would be uh, there would be a strong sync syncretism with Catholicism, but then the new generation of Italian witches, of Italian segnatori and segnatrici, tend to syncretize more with paganism. So um, uh, you, you would say, oh, there's a strong Catholic component. It used to be, but now it's kind of changing because um, there are because many of the people that wanted to get the segnature passed uh, passed down onto them and didn't uh, think, oh, that's just a superstition or it's uh, devil working or things like that were pagans. So there's a reason why there's a, a stronger presence of pagans in the new generation of segnatori and segnatrici. Uh, so I think what's distinctive. Um, maybe the, the Malocchio and the evil eye in southern Italy is particularly prevalent. Um, but I've, I've talked with other scholars who have studied folk magic practices in central and eastern Europe, and it seems like there are a few elements in common between the Italian folk magic tradition and other folk magic traditions from other countries. So um, yeah, I, I guess the, the practice of the segnature would be probably distinctive of Italian witchcraft, but I can't guarantee it because I think that we need a, a broader study because it, it looks like there are other countries that actually have very similar practices. Like there's on my channel an interview to um, uh, Dr. Uh, James Capalo uh, who talks about uh, folk magic in the Republic of Moldova, and we were highlighting the similarities between Italian witchcraft and the Republic of Moldova. And at conferences, I was also approached by other scholars who were studying in um, Switzerland. In Switzerland, they also have the segnature with the same exact name. Um, so, and even in Germany. So there are countries where they actually use the same exact term that they use in Italy. So it's difficult to say if it is truly distinctive of Italy. It, there's part of the cultural side, the, the culture that is that surrounds these magic practices is very Italian and the way of dealing with things is very Italian. Uh, but <laughs> it's possible that these practices actually uh, are part of a broader, uh, broader tradition. We but I also to... think of about Italian immigration to the north, to, to Switzerland and Germany from southern work in southern Italy, not on segnature specifically, but there are many who actually traveled and families who have been, you know. Yeah, I think that w I just don't have enough research data to tell whether it's due to immigration or whether in other countries they have something very similar, because even countries that are not as closed as Switzerland and Germany. I found that they have very similar practices. So I think that having a more research on, on Europe more broadly would clarify that. And just a um, thing that I found online, uh, over the summer on my ethnographic work, I don't work on Segnatura, but I noticed that um, folk theories about secrecy and our culture, so to speak, uh, around this type of rituals are changing with new generations are much more open. You don't have to wait to you know, certain days of the year, of the calendar to pass this knowledge through others as much. So I think the, um, yeah, things are changing and evolving. So maybe we are seeing, witnessing a forging of a new, uh, Italian witchcraft traditions as well, uh, Matt. Um, wonderful. I think it's time to go. It's one o'clock. So I, 
it's time to wrap up unfortunately <laughs> i would love to spend more time talking to you and with with the community here so thank you dr puka for your participation and wonderful conversation and thank you all for having been with us please stay tuned on the activities of the csw the transcendence and transformation initiative and nosiologies you can find all the information uh, on the in the chat box including the registration link for our next Nosiologies event that will be on November 1st. As many of you requested, last year we have Professor Susan Lepseltzer again with us, this year with the performance and presentation of a video poem left standing. One last thing, a little shout out to my Nosiologist community. Please contact me if you would like me to talk about specific topic or specific scholars in this nosiology space, I'm happy um, to hear your voice and your opinions on this. So thank you all for being with us and having have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Bye. Thank bye, you bye, for bye. inviting me. It was a pleasure, as always, to talk mm -hmm. to you. Thank you so much. Sponsor, Center for the Study of World Religions. Copyright 2023, President and Fellows of Harvard College.